Okay, well, we are uh, excited to kind of finish up, hopefully this month, although we're not on any particular uh, timetable, but we're kind of wrapping up our two years plus now series on what lies ahead, a biblical overview uh, of the end times. And, uh, you know, what's, what's cool about this is we've, we've covered so much. We've covered a ton of ground and we've, we've tried to kind of cradle the grave, cover everything we can about the, God's plan of the ages. But along the way, we've picked up a lot of new people. We've picked up people here at Plum Creek Chapel. We've picked up people live streaming and listening to the podcast. And so uh, even though we're going to kind of review for the next few weeks and take your questions, do some question and answer, for many of you, this will be uh, new. Now, I uh, wanted to mention that starting Tuesday night, January 31st, we're going to shift our prophecy focus uh, from Sundays to Tuesdays, and we're going to be launching Prophecy Night right here at Plum Creek Chapel. A little bit different f format, at least a longer format, uh, about an hour of teaching and 15 minutes of, of Q&A at the end of each session by design. We'll also kick it off with some music each week. So mark your calendars for that. That will take the place of our, our midweek Wednesday service. So no longer will we have the Wednesday service. That will be on Tuesday night, and it's going to be called Prophecy Night. So just want to remind you uh, of that as we look forward. We'll say more about that in uh, the days to come. Don't forget, uh, a lot of the material that we've been covering the last year, anyway, comes from Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1 and 2. And I know you guys know this. We've got the books out on the table. Help yourself to them. But we, again, we, for those that are joining us online, we like to mention they can go to spiritoftheantichrist.org, spiritoftheantichrist.org, uh, and uh, check out those books there. Uh, and then I uh, want to covet your prayers for my first event of the next uh, of this coming year. We'll be in Florida, February 18th and 19th. Uh, what is this world coming to? An overview of end times prophecy. I'll be speaking seven times over two days there uh, covering uh, the topic of uh, uh, end times prophecy. So uh, we will be live streaming that. We'll have more about to say about that uh, as we get closer. It won't be live streamed through our technology, but the, the host uh, church is going to be live streaming it, and we'll link it up at uh, notbyworks.org, so you can check that out. And if you're in the East Coast or anywhere in uh, Florida, I had someone email me this week that lives two hours from there. They said, we've already registered, we're coming, so I can't wait to, to meet them. But uh, if you're in that area, come see us uh, in person, otherwise you can live stream it. So uh, let's talk about uh, what lies ahead and kind of walk through here a little bit of, uh, you know, what we've talked about and where we've been. I want to start with just some, some general commentary because I run into this a lot. I have for 35 years, and, and, and I want to give you some, not so much ammunition because that sounds, you know, hostile. We don't mean it that way. But just some good responses to those who say some of the same things to you that I've picked up on uh, through the years. And that is, you know, why do you talk about Bible prophecy? Nobody understands it. It's why, why waste time on it? Or why do you spend so much time on Bible prophecy? Those types of things. Well, first of all, uh, it's not really a good argument to say, why do you talk about Bible prophecy and nobody understands it? Because the very fact that nobody understands it tells you you need to talk about it more. <laughs> if people taught it more, they would understand it. But the fact is, it's ignored. It's, uh, it's just completely brushed aside, and most pastors won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Uh, but the reason that we uh, believe it's important to t teach on Bible prophecy fundamentally is because 
again, 16% of God's Word, it deals with unfulfilled prophecy. So if you're ignoring prophecy, you're only teaching 85%, or you're only studying 84% of the Bible. And we're told we need to study the whole counsel of God. Uh, God revealed this to us for a reason. He didn't reveal so we could the Bible to us so we could study some of it. He wants us to study all of it. And it's by studying God's Word that we get to know Him better. We become uh, stronger in our faith. Not to mention the fact that Bible prophecy should hold a particular key place in our studies because it tells the end of the story. So if you don't study Bible prophecy, then you're kind of left hanging with where, where are things going? What is this world coming to? What, what, what's the end of the story? And you become myopic in your focus and, and end up studying just the here and the now and not the big picture. Uh, and then in terms of why do, you know, why emphasize it so much? Well, again, it's all on balance. You know, if you've got uh, one third of the Bible, by the way, is prophetic. Now, half of that's already been fulfilled. Half of it awaits fulfillment. But if you think of the Bible in terms of thirds, one third of it is Bible prophecy. So if you get three times to study the Word in a formal local church setting a week, you ought to dedicate one third of that to prophecy. Uh, I would also add that in times like these, when we see the signs of the times unfolding with great you know, importance right before our very eyes, then it makes it all the more important to be studying God's Word. You know, the, uh, the church in the 1930s during the rise of Hitler, they didn't study Bible prophecy. And look what happened, right? So we want to study it because it's unfolding before our very eyes. And uh, it's quite possible, again, we're, we can't set dates. The Bible doesn't set dates, but it does give us signs of the times uh, so that we can, you know, not make the same mistake that the first century Jews made, as Jesus talks about in Matthew 16, wherein we, we, we can discern the weather by looking at the clouds, but we don't know the signs of the times. We don't want to make that mistake. Uh, so, as we, as we look at what's happening and unfolding all around us, it makes it all the more important to be studying a Bible prophecy. So, two years ago, we started out with a session on why study Bible prophecy. And I'm just throwing this slide up there so that it's captured in the video. We're not going to take the time to look up all these passages. But as you can see on the screen, there are a number of biblical reasons to study Bible prophecy. First of all, it's Scripture, and the Bible says all Scripture is profitable. Secondly, it provides a hope for the future. Again, it tells us the end of the story. Uh, it also provides a motivation because we can look up and be watchful and know that our Lord is returning soon. We can have that great expectancy. We can eagerly await His return. We can look for the blessed hope and so forth. Uh, it puts life in perspective. If you don't study Bible prophecy, then you think this is all there is to life. Um, it authenticates Scripture by reminding us of the passages that have already been fulfilled. So it shows us that God is a covenant-keeping God, and He can be counted on. And then finally, by studying Bible prophecy, we're inspired to worship the sovereign Creator who's in complete control of all of human history. So when you start studying end times, a lot of people think you start at the end. In fact, uh, let's play a little word association game here. If, if I say the word end times Bible prophecy, what book of the Bible immediately pops to mind? Revelation, right, which is the last book of the Bible. But a couple of, uh, a couple of points. First of all, Revelation, in the grand scheme of things, really only focuses primarily on one seven-year period of end times prophecy. Chapters 6 
to 18. The bulk of the book of Revelation are all about a seven-year period. It does touch on, in the end, uh, the, uh, the idea of the millennial phase of the kingdom, the eternal state. We get a chapter on each of those. Uh, but it, it's, it, there's, there are far greater passages in scope that deal with a comprehensive overview of the end times. For example, Jesus' teaching atop the Mount of Olives is probably the most comprehensive, you know, blow by blow teaching of the end times that we get anywhere. So uh, most people, when you when you think, oh, I want to study the end times, they immediately flip to the end of the Bible and start studying, and that's fine. But the best way to study the end is to understand the beginning, and you can't really put God's plan of the ages in perspective if you haven't first understood and, and started with that. So we started uh, way back in uh, Genesis with the kingdom promise. And I want to review that uh, this morning. And by the way, even though for our prophecy nights, starting Tuesday nights, January 31st, we're going to hold questions to the end and have a dedicated Q&A, for our Sunday morning Bible study, as always, if you have a question, raise your hand. Don't hesitate to interrupt or make a comment or, you know, get my attention because this we, we want you know this to be beneficial to you in that way so um, but let's start with just a couple of charts to kind of put things in perspective the end times as we call it starts with the rapture of the church and goes all the way through the create the creation of the new heavens and the new earth the eternal state so the Bible is coming full circle in its plan for human history from creation to fall and back to recreation. From creation to fall to redemption, if you will. And so if you start in the bottom left of, of this chart, you know you see how the world was created. We know what happened uh, after that. Satan tempted Eve in the garden. Mankind fell. All the world became corrupt. The image of God in man was uh, defaced. And uh, then God set in, in motion immediately His plan to redeem not only individual human beings from the curse of sin and the penalty of sin, but all of creation from the curse of sin. Remember, sin didn't just affect you and me. It affected all of creation. The whole earth, all of the created realm is under the curse of sin, which is why when all is said and done, God's going to recreate the created realm in sinless perfection. But then you can kind of just walk through the chart there. We talked about this uh, in detail uh, way back then. But uh, you, next thing we see created is the nations after the flood. Then Israel is set aside as God's chosen nation. And then the church. We're now living in the present church age. In terms of the redemption plan, it kind of works uh, in reverse order. He'll redeem the church first at the rapture. Then the Israel will be regathered into the land. Then at the second coming, he will judge the nations, and then ultimately all of creation will be judged for sin when he burns it up, like we talked about last week in worship, and then uh, be re it'll be recreated in the new heavens and the new earth. So if you understand God's plan of the ages, which is uh, clearly outlined in the pages of Scripture, you see that we are really living in the last days before the coming kingdom, before the consummation of it all. That's why the Bible... Uh, repeatedly refers to this age as the last days. The last days is not the end times. Those are two different things. The last days in Scripture is the present church age, and we've been living in the, the last days uh, for 2,000 years. Uh, the end times begins with the rapture and takes us all the way through the, till, until we get to the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. 
So it's kind of exciting when you look at it in perspective. You know, it's kind of like when you're when you're using your GPS map, you know, Apple Maps or Google Maps or whatever, and you're you're kind of seeing the turn by turn, and you can see just a short section. But if you're like me and and, and us, and you travel a lot, sometimes you kind of go, "Where am I? You know, where where am I in the big picture? You know, I'm not even sure what state I'm in." And so you zoom out. And you can kind of see, oh, okay, yeah, I'm in the southeast corner of Tennessee or something like that, right? So this is what understanding Bible prophecy helps us do. Uh, it helps us keep from making the mistake, for example, of elevating the church as if it's the end-all, be-all of God's plan. And there is a, a whole group of Christian teachers out there who suggest that the church is the kingdom. The church is the finality of God's plan. The church has replaced Israel. It's called uh, replacement theology. Theologians call it supersessionism. Um, but when you look at God's plan of the ages and you study Bible prophecy, you go, wait a minute. No, no, no. There's an age to come. Uh, but it's kind of exciting. I mean, aren't you glad you're not living, for example, in Noah's day? You know? Or, you know, Abraham's day? I mean, in some ways it would be kind of cool if we could get in a time machine and go back there and experience it. But when you think of the blessings of the present church age in terms of our intimate relationship with God, our unequaled, unprecedented access to the throne room in heaven, uh, not to mention just all the earthly blessings of, you know, the, the advancements that we've had and, and so forth. Um, but we're living in the church age. And someday the church age is going to end when Christ uh, calls us to meet him in the air at the rapture, as you see on the far left of, uh, of this uh, chart. And that's going to then start the clock ticking on this transitional age between uh, the sixth and the seventh dispensations, or the sixth age and the seventh age. By the way, dispensation is a biblical term. We talked about that too early on. It comes from the book of Ephesians. And so... It just means a, uh, an economy or stewardship. And each one of these ages, uh, if you will, uh, has a different way of interacting with God. It doesn't mean a different way of salvation. Individual personal salvation from the penalty of sin is the same for everybody from Adam until the end of the age. It's every human being comes to a right relationship with God the same way, by faith. So it's not different ways of eternal salvation, but it is clearly a different economy, a different stewardship, a different way of interacting with God. Um, and, you know, obviously in the Old Testament era, the law, uh, people came to God through uh, the law, through the festivals and the feasts and the sacrifices and all of the things that we read about in Leviticus and so forth. Uh, but today, our way of interacting with God is different. We don't have to go through a human mediator, at least not, uh, you know, multiple human mediators. We have one fully God and fully human mediator, Jesus Christ, the once for all sacrifice, who is at the right hand of God mediating for us. And so we have uh, a new and living way opened up for us, as the book of Hebrews uh, talks about. So we can boldly approach the throne now. We don't have to go through human uh, systems and rituals and things. Um, so there are all kinds of blessings of living in this present age. But the exciting thing when you look at the panoramic view of human history here is that you see there's another age coming. And so we see references to God's kingdom promise uh, all throughout Scripture going all the way back to the beginning. That's why I say if you want to study the end times, you've got to study the beginning. You know, as I've uh, pointed out many times, 
uh, through the years. Nobody would pick up a, a novel by you know Tom Clancy or Robert Ludlum or somebody and start reading in the last few chapters and wonder why they can't understand what's going on. <laughs> they start reading at the beginning. That's just the way you read books, and then it makes sense, right? And then you kind of get excited. You see it building up, and that's exactly what God did with his kingdom promise. The minute mankind fell, God promised right there in the garden as he was confronting the serpent that someday the serpent will be defeated and my you know, kingdom will come. And then we see it reiterated again and again. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. It all started in the garden. I will put, this is God speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. We've talked about before how the word seed there in Hebrew is zerach, and it literally means male seed, semen. And so it would have really been uh, strange in the Hebrew text and, and for the Jews reading this uh, when Moses penned these words in the 1440s, for them to see a reference to her seed because it doesn't make sense. There is no seed of the woman. But this is an early reference uh, to the virgin birth, because indeed it was the egg of the woman, but the seed of the Holy Spirit that conceived the long-awaited Messiah. So this is talking about Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, and notice it says, He, Jesus, shall bruise your head. That's just a way of saying He's going to utterly defeat you. He's going to crush you. you know, the head being the, the most... Uh, sensitive place, you know, uh, you can shoot someone in the arm and they might survive. You shoot them in the head, they're not going to survive. So he shall bruise your head and notice it says, you shall bruise his heel. Again, an early reference to the crucifixion. Uh, again, you can hurt your heel and you're going to survive. And that's just a poetic way here of, of referring to the fact that Satan would, in fact, ultimately lead to the betrayal, arrest, trial and crucifixion of the Messiah, Jesus incarnate, but it wouldn't hold him. The grave wouldn't hold him. It wouldn't be the end of the story. He would rise again three days later. But Christ himself is going to crush the head of uh, the serpent someday. So we call this the Protevangelium. It's uh, the earliest reference to the gospel. Uh, evangelium there meaning gospel, proto meaning first, so the first gospel. And really, the rest of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is all about the details of how this plan uh, comes together. And it, we really begin to get a picture of it in Genesis 12 with the Abrahamic uh, covenant. So the Lord says to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So this covenant is the foundational covenant in, in all of Scripture that explains God's plan of the ages. And it involves three promises that relate ultimately to the kingdom and will find their fulfillment in the kingdom. And those promises are a promise of land, a promise of seed, and a promise of blessing. So we see the reference to land here, reading on in verse 2, I will make you a great nation. In other words, from Abraham's loins will come a great nation. And, uh, and that's the seed of Abraham. The New Testament uh, comes along. Let me see if I've got this chart today, if I was smart enough to remember to put it in here. I was. The New Testament comes along and says uh, there are four seeds of Abraham. 
You've got the natural seed of Abraham, which are the physical descendants of Abraham. In other words, the ethnic Jews. You read about that in Romans 9. And then you've got the natural spiritual seed, that is, Jews who have been saved. They believe the gospel and they're born again. So they're not only natural seeds, but they're spiritual seeds and heirs to the kingdom. But then you've got just the plain spiritual seed, and that is non-Jews, like you and I, uh, assuming you're not a Jew, uh, who or Gentiles, who believe the gospel. And they're saved, and therefore we become heirs of this kingdom promise that we're looking at, and we'll go back to here in a second, from all the way back in Genesis. But the ultimate seed of Abraham, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, is Jesus Christ himself. And so the Abrahamic covenant is really just a, a detailed expression of what God revealed early on in Genesis uh, chapter 3. So, uh, so we've got land in Genesis 12.1. I'm going to give you a, a land. And then he says, I'm going to make a great nation from you, that seed. And then he says, through Abraham, every nation on earth will be, will be blessed. So there's blessing. So you've got land, seed, and blessing. And this kingdom promise then gets, if you're looking for it, again, if you started at the beginning and not the end, you see it reiterated again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. For example, you come to David's uh, covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, still in the line of Abraham, and who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So now we've had, you know, by the time you get to 2 Samuel, what, what, what has happened? Well, the children of Abraham, the Jews, have, been, have had multiple generations. They've been freed from bondage in Egypt. They've gone across the Jordan into the Promised Land. They've set up camp, and they're about to build the temple, which Solomon, David's son, built, and God explicitly says, I will establish his kingdom from your seed. And notice what he says. This can't be talking about Solomon in this portion. He does reference Solomon earlier as the one who will build the first temple. But here he's saying, when I build your house, your temple, your kingdom will be established forever. And your throne will be established forever. Right? So has that happened? I mean, there's not even a temple standing in Jerusalem today. So no, this hasn't happened. And so either God was lying, or he, I mean, there's no other option. Uh, because this is an, an I will statement, an unconditional promise. He doesn't say, as long as you behave yourself, Jewish people. No, no, this is unconditional. God's not going to renege. In fact, after we, in a moment, we're going to look at several other reiterations that the prophets make, where they talk about how... As long as there's a moon and stars in the and sun and moon and stars in the heavens, you can count on my covenant coming true. And last time I checked, in fact, on our drive in this morning, you could still see a faint picture of the moon behind some clouds. Well, every time you see that, you ought to remember, okay, the kingdom is coming. That's what God said, the kingdom is coming. Um, so he refers to this promised kingdom uh, again and again. As David is praying his prayer of thanksgiving after God made the covenant with him. He says, Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness, the coming kingdom and temple, to your servant. 
Uh, and then we read in Second Chronicles 21, Yet the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever, a lamp there being a metonym for the kingdom. So many times throughout Israel's history, Israel rebelled against God. They uh, you know, were disobedient. They catered to the pagan uh, rituals of neighboring lands. They worshiped false gods. And God certainly could have destroyed them. But because he's a covenant-keeping God, though he brought discipline, he never utterly wiped them out. And that's what replacement theologians miss. They think that God finally had enough is enough with Israel and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift all my promises spiritually over to the church. The church is not Israel. The church doesn't even meet the criteria of the details spelled out in so many of the passages in the Old Testament that make this promise. An anonymous psalmist is recounting God's faithfulness to Israel through all generations, and he refers to this promise as holy. He remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. Only God can make a holy promise. A one-of-a-kind promise. Holy means one-of-a-kind, set apart. In other words, you can count on it. You, know, you and I might make promises, right? But we, we make promises and we, and we fail to fulfill them all the time. You know, It's just human nature. But when God makes a promise, you can count on it. Now, here's uh, Jeremiah 33. Behold, the days are coming says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. So now we're in you know, the post-exilic times, roughly 500 years before Christ. So we've gone all the way from the day of Abraham, 2000 B.C., 1500 years later, 500 years before Christ, and God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is continuing uh, to reference this uh, promise. It's the same prophet Jeremiah, I don't have it on the screen, uh, at least not now. No, I'm, I'm about to get to it, actually, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. All right. So where is this promised kingdom then? You know, Now we're another from Jeremiah's day and from the Old Testament final prophet's days. We're another 2,400 years later, 2,000 years of church history, 400 years in between uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the coming of Christ. Where is it? I mean, are we giving up? Um See, a lot of people say God changed his mind. That when Israel crucified the Messiah, God said, oh, that's it. But the prophets predicted that's what they would do. They would stumble over the, the stumbling stone. Um, some say God never really meant it literally. That's uh, patently absurd because, you know, the way the people responded to the promise, David knew exactly what God meant. When God said, I will build you a throne, a, a kingdom, a land, a temple, all of those things, a house. David, when he heard that, didn't think, oh, God's talking about this great big metaphor and someday he's going to reign inside my heart spiritually. That's not what David meant. David understood what kingdom meant and house meant and throne meant and so forth. And so, uh, you know, let's, let's deal with these objections. Did God change his mind? Is that what happened? Well, back to Jeremiah. Uh, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that there will be no more day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant. Now, you know, the sun went down, so to speak, last night. The sun rose this morning. We still have night and day. So thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and the stars 
uh, for light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. Je Jeremiah here is just expressing, uh, obviously under the inspiration of the Spirit, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, the power of Almighty God, the Creator God. And here's the verse I referenced. If these ordinances, the sun, the moon, the stars, depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Notice how specific that is. Israel isn't going to be subsumed into the church so that there's one people of God and the, the, the specific promises to God's chosen nation Israel are abrogated and completely turned, you know, forgotten. No, no, he's talking about the nation of Israel someday will get its uh, promises. You come to the New Testament and... Uh, and uh, we read in Hebrews 6, when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely, this is straight out of the, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. He goes on, thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise. Now, who are the heirs of the promise? And? Everybody, right, the whole earth. So yes, the Jews are the party to the covenant. The nation of Israel is the party to the covenant. But it's through Israel, as we read about in Genesis 12, that all nations on earth, every human being on earth will be blessed. So when we get into the kingdom, when Christ comes back, and by the way, the church comes back with him at the end of the tribulation period, when, we, when he comes back and establishes the kingdom, the whole earth will be blessed. But it will be Israel's kingdom. Now, that's what Jesus had in mind when he told the Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews. He wasn't just talking there about individual eternal life as a, uh, you know, being saved from the penalty of sin. He was talking about ultimate deliverance into the kingdom. It's through the Jews. It'll be the nation of Israel's kingdom. Jerusalem will be the capital city of the world. The temple will be rebuilt as uh, described very uh, in great detail in um, Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. So, of course, God has not changed his mind. Uh, he made it very clear. God would be a liar. Uh, was the kingdom that was promised, was it figurative? Maybe all of these people for millennia now have misunderstood it. And, and that's what some people teach, is that, well, we didn't really understand until Augustine came along 400 years after Christ, after the New Testament was written, and he explained it to us, right? And, uh, you know, we used uh, allegorical interpretation and understand it's all spiritual and the Catholic Church is the kingdom and we're just all subjects in the kingdom and no, Israel is no more, right? And that, that played pretty well for about, you know, 1900 years until 1948 when Israel, which had never been on a map for 1900 years before that, till 70 A.D., from 70 A.D. forward, you didn't hear about Israel. Now all of a sudden Israel's reborn after World War II. And now all of a sudden people go, hmm, maybe there is a future for Israel. And of course all the Bible prophecy teachers that understood all along that there was a future for national Israel, they start going crazy writing books and a lot of them were misunderstanding certain things and making predictions and setting dates and that's unfortunate. But at least, you know, it was a, a reminder that indeed God's uh, plan for Israel hasn't been forgotten. One of the messages I'm going to be giving in Florida next month is, is uh, on... Uh, Top, something like top 10 signs of the times. I forget what I'm calling it, but I sketched this out this past week and uh, the seven messages. And right there in that list is going to be the reestablishment of Israel as a nation. I mean, if you don't think that's a sign of the times, you're, you're living in a cave. I mean, 
uh, clearly the stage is being set for the return of the Jews to the land and the coming of the Messiah to set up his eternal uh, reign there in the kingdom. Uh, so, but anyway, a lot of people say, no, it was just figurative. Well, let's just go back and look at this. Uh, how would Abraham have understood this promise of a land? Physically, right? I mean, his, you know, uh, if you hear the word land, you think physical land. You don't immediately think, oh, it's just a metaphor for something spiritual that's going to be inside your heart, right? How would, uh, uh, how, how would, you know, by the way, in Genesis 15, in case there was any doubt, which there shouldn't be, it's 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 a silly argument that people make that it's been that the promise was spiritual and not literal. Uh, but in Genesis 15, he spells it out with specific boundaries. To your descendants, I have given this land, the river Egypt, from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and so forth. And by the way, I don't have the chart here, but. We've talked previously when we talked about the land aspect of this covenant, how Israel to this day has never occupied the full expanse of the land. The modern day Israel is just a small, small percentage, less than 10% of the total land boundaries as described here. Some 300,000 square miles. It's huge. So, I mean, again, this is not figurative. This is uh, literal. Uh, about going back to Second uh, Samuel, how would David have understood the reference to the kingdom. We already talked about that. Of course, when he sees throne and house and kingdom, he's thinking physicality. He's not thinking some spiritual metaphorical kingdom. And then you come to the New Testament when John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Has anything happened that would make people think that somehow the term kingdom doesn't mean kingdom and it means some spiritual nebulous you know, idea? Of course not. The Jews had been looking for that kingdom for 2,000 years since Abraham predicted it. Certainly for 1,000 years since David received the promise, they'd been looking for the son of David. Uh, now, their hope had begun to wane. They had drifted far away from the Lord. By the time the first, you get to the first century in the Greco-Roman world, the Jews were, 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 had misunderstood the purpose of the law. They had created 613 different laws that they thought they had to keep to dot their I's and cross their T's. Yeah, there was plenty going wrong with Israel, but one thing that they didn't mistake was the fact the kingdom was coming. And, uh, and so when John the Baptist says the kingdom is at hand, many people eagerly followed John the Baptist's teaching. They said, oh, is it finally here? It's going to be in our generation. We're going to see the kingdom. They're going to throw off the the king is coming. He's going to throw off the shackles of Rome and usher in this long-awaited kingdom. And that's why John the Baptist had so many converts. By the way, not everybody, as we talked about in our series through Acts a few months ago, not everybody who believed John's message about the kingdom was born again. They weren't saved, some of them, as we saw in Acts chapter 19. They, they were baptized by John, meaning they identified with his message, and they eagerly wanted the kingdom to come. Uh, but like the nation of na national Israel as a whole, they missed the point that before you can call on the name of the Lord and be delivered into the kingdom, as Joel tells us, the prophet, uh, you've got to first believe the gospel and be saved. Individual regeneration must precede national deliverance into the kingdom. So, uh, but that's what they would have thought, no question about it. Jesus repeated the same thing when he began his ministry. Again, when they heard the word kingdom, where's their mind going to go? It's going to go to a literal kingdom. And then as we read through the Gospels, we see you know, incontrovertible evidence again and again that it was a literal kingdom that they ex expected. They had an the disciples had an obsession with the kingdom. For example, 
at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter was so overcome with the fact that, you know, Elijah was there and Moses was there, the King Jesus was there. He said, let's just build some tents and let's start the kingdom right now. Now, that's not a, when you're building tents and you're on top of a mountain, that's not a spiritual kingdom. That's a very much a physical a kingdom. They're hammering nails to tie the ropes to bring up the canvases, right? That's a physical kingdom. What about Matthew 19? When the disciples, when Jesus promised the disciples, they would sit with him on 12 thrones. That's very literal and very specific. What about when one of the disciples' moms said to Jesus, can you have my sons sit on either side of you in the kingdom? Now, clearly she thought it was a literal kingdom, right? Um, Luke 19 uh, the day before the triumphal entry, Jesus is uh, outside uh, Jerusalem. And uh, he, the Bible tells us in Luke 19 that the disciples thought the kingdom was going to appear immediately. A literal kingdom. Again, they thought Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and usher in the kingdom. And so because they thought that, Luke tells us, Jesus told them a parable about how the king is going to go away for a while to receive the kingdom. Then he's going to come back. And while he's gone, you need to be patient. It's coming. And so it should have been very clear at that point, just days before he's crucified, that you know while the kingdom is coming, it wasn't going to come right then. And then we see the triumphal entry and fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, which is ushering in uh, the kingdom. And then uh, Jesus references frequently in that final week, that Passion Week, uh, Matthew's account is, you know, Matthew 21, 22, 23, all the way up to the Olivet Discourse in 24 and 25, and then the betrayal and arrest and the Passion Narrative in 26 to 28. Um, so you, you see ref frequent references to this wedding feast, which is going to take place in uh, the kingdom. So there's no question, or shouldn't be any question, that the kingdom was literal. Um, Jesus promised Wednesday night of, of that week, before he was betrayed and laid in a tomb by Friday morning, uh, he promised, look, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, how would you have taken that if you were sitting on the hillside listening to him say that? I would take it that he's coming back physically. Uh, not that he's going to inaugurate a kingdom spiritually in our hearts that is metaphorical and that the church is ruling over somehow uh, in the present day. Uh, but in case there was any doubt, let's now fast forward to the Christ has risen from the dead on Resurrection Sunday, and, you know, 40 days later, he appears for 40 days to thousands of people. 40 days later, he's on the Mount of Ascension, and Luke, same author, Luke uh, wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, tells us this. They've gathered together, and the disciples now, kind of having put all the pieces together, you know, they, were, they had a hard time accepting the plain teaching of our Lord, that suffering has to come before glory, that the cross has to come before the crown. They wanted it all right then, as we read about it or referenced in Luke 19. They, they really didn't understand the two phases of Christ's coming. Once as the suffering servant, like Isaiah talked about, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and then once as the victorious warrior, like Zechariah 14 talks about, to take the throne. They didn't understand that. But now they did, because now they had been there They'd, they'd watched him walk up the Via Dolorosa. They'd seen him take the crown of thorns, and they had fled, frankly. But then they'd, he'd appeared to them, and he'd had breakfast with them on the shore, and they'd 
had 40 days to kind of recognize, you know what, we blew it, and now we get it. And yet, even still, even though they understand the nature of the atoning work of Christ with the judgment of Christ at the second coming, they're still obsessed with the kingdom. And they ask him, okay, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it finally time? And what does he say? Does he say to them, you silly disciples, haven't you figured it out yet? It's going to be a spiritual kingdom. I'm not going to literally reign in a brick-and-mortar temple. Get your act together. No, of course he doesn't. This would have been the perfect time to let them know that, but he doesn't. He says just the opposite. No, no, I'm coming, but it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. The word times there is chronos in Greek. It means a length of duration. Uh, kairos is the word seasons. It means exact date, exact moment. It's not for you to know how long it'll be or when the exact time is. But I'm coming. I'm coming. So, uh, again, uh, the rest of the, you know, the, the idea of the end times and the details about the end times, all that we've you know, looked at and studied in this series and that we're going to uh, study. By the way, here's that chart I mentioned about the land of Israel. You see Israel there in red. And the blue outline is what the kingdom, the promised land to Abraham was. And they've never observed that. But, um, you know, everything else that we're going to study about the end times that we've been studying and that we're going to review, all is predicated upon this veiled reference in the garden that God made to the serpent. But the detailed, specific kingdom promise that God made to Abraham 2,000 years before Christ in Genesis 12. And, uh, and, and then, if you don't understand that, then, of course, you're going to think that a lot of this is negotiable or it's just, you know. Sometimes when people don't understand the end times, they look at teachers of the end times who use charts to illustrate it, and they say, oh, that's just a chart. Well, it's, the chart represents what's in the Bible, right? And it reflects. That's why I put verses on my charts to kind of show you where we get this uh, concept from. So hopefully that kind of helps. We'll continue next week with some more uh you know, review, we'll get into, uh, uh, you know, just some Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, the most important prophecy in Scripture as it relates to end times and some of that. But let me take just a few questions here, if there are any, before we finish. Yeah. Um, this, I, I say, yeah. The tangible kingdom movement. I am not familiar with that phrase, I confess, so I, I can't really comment on that. But I like the word tangible, I'll tell you that, because it is a tangible kingdom. But I really don't know anything about that movement. Sorry. Oh. Yeah. Oh, kind of could be a prosperity gospel movement. Yeah, if you find something, send me a link, and I'll, I'll, I'd be curious. I always like to learn about... Uh, New heresies. That's why. That's why I watch TVN. But anyway, um, so anybody else with a question or a comment? Okay. Well, I'm not going to force it out of you. So, oh yes, Mike. Well, this is a little bit off the topic, maybe. But um, have you watched the Chosen One? I think it's just called the Chosen, the right? Chosen. Yeah, I haven't. Uh, Wendy has, and I've, I have friends that have. I'm somewhat familiar with it. I've read some stuff about it. I was just I was just uh, interested in the, the portrayal of Matthew was really interesting. Yeah. Portraying him as basically autistic 
Yeah. And, they, and I had a very, I had a real penchant for accurate uh, recording, you know, a recording of things. Well, Luke certainly was a and very Dr. meticulous Dr. historian yeah. uh, and doctor, mm-hmm. a physician. Uh, you know, my, my, uh, this might make some people mad, but I'm not a huge fan of The Chosen or any biblical epic. Uh, I talked about this a few years ago on a radio program. I just feel like they take liberties and people that don't read the Bible might watch that and think that it, you know, it portrays accurately these things that they take liberties with, kind of like The Passion of the Christ, which was a Catholic movie. It was Catholic from beginning to end and it shows the stations of the cross and it, 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 it leaves Jesus in the tomb. Um, but uh, so I'm, you know, I don't want to be too critical. I think I've heard it was well done. I heard it really was moving and meaningful to a lot of people, but I just... I just uh, have some reservations about taking liberties and, and, and so forth. Well, I was just really curious as to whether there's any reference uh, in the Bible textually to the personalities, to the, to the level of detail that they were showing. Obviously, they took, yeah, some, I don't, they took some liberties in, 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 in creating a character profile. Yeah, it was definitely literary license. They, they created it, you know. Uh, details, kind of like uh, Tim LaHaye's Left Behind movies. You know, the framework is accurate, but they took all kinds of liberties with the story to, to, to make it be, be a good story. Um, so uh, I think you can read the biblical narrative and you can come away with some obvious characteristics of Peter and Paul and some of these just, just from observing what they do. But, you know, I wouldn't take that too far because we only have just a snippet you know, of, of their whole lives. Uh, and so it would be hard to extrapolate from that, you know, their overall sure. personality and so forth. Okay, well, awesome. Well, let's take a break. We'll come back together at 10 o'clock here locally for our worship service. Those of you live streaming, we usually start the live stream about 1025-ish, but just kind of stand by and, and uh, you'll rejoin us when we start the message.